0: In 1990, the Human Genome Project was initiated with the goal of sequencing and identifying all 3 billion units of the human genome. Thirteen years later, in 2003, this project was completed. Since then, scientists have been able to use this information to better understand viruses and how to develop targeted treatments, understand the mutations associated with different forms of cancer create biofuels and advancements in agriculture, and so much more. Sequencing the human genome has also given the field of biology a unique and powerful tool in the quest for what it means to be human. My name is Megan Peugeot, and this is Human.
1: My name is Katie Pollard, I'm trained as a statistician, and I am the principal investigator of a bioinformatics lab. We develop statistical models and bioinformatics tools primarily for genomics, and um, a lot of our approaches take an evolutionary or phylogenetic approach.
0: This week on Human, we're taking a look at how the field of biology tries to answer what it means to be human, and the role that DNA plays in this search by talking to Dr. Katie Pollard. So, at least from my understanding, it seems like DNA is one of the primary tools that biologists are using to determine what separates human from other living things. So, why is DNA so important in this process?
1: Well, what makes each of us as a person unique and what makes our species unique is all coded in our genome, all the information for making all the cells in our body and making us as organisms is coded there. So it's an exciting question to try to ask, how changes in the sequence affect changes in the organism and in our cells. Um, I wouldn't say DNA is the only approach people take to understand what's unique about humans. There's obviously um, philosophical approaches to that right. question. Um, there are uh, Lots of behavioral studies um, and uh, you know medical studies. Lots of different angles. But the um, the way to relate DNA to all that other data is by asking what sequence changes correlate with the other kinds of ch- differences.
0: Gotcha. So it's like trying to find the building blocks that lead to those bigger things like behavioral changes.
1: Yeah, I would say it's trying to find the molecular mechanisms through which those differences arise.
0: So in an article you wrote for Scientific American, you said that the story of what makes us human is probably not going to focus on changes in our protein building blocks, but rather on how evolution assembled these blocks in new ways um correct where genes are getting turned on and off so can you explain the idea of gene activation a little bit yeah
1: so every cell in our bodies contains the same set of proteins mm-hmm. and it turned out when we sequenced a human genome and a chimpanzee genome that the human and chimp genomes contain almost the exact same proteins not completely and there are some interesting differences in our proteins but um our proteins are largely the same and even within a person in different parts of your body of set of proteins um, that could be turned on and off are the same, but an eye is very different than a piece of skin, and a human is very different from a chimpanzee, and uh, those differences are largely due to which genes get turned on and off, and that's important for making different kinds of cells different from each other, because cells are made up of proteins, and proteins carry all the instructions for the cell how to make the cell itself physically and and how it responds to its environment so um it's completely feasible that you can have different cell types and different organisms with pretty similar protein not different yeah. combinations of genes and the way that happens is a fundamental question in biology there's still a lot of research to be done to fully understand that but we believe that sequences in the dna outside of the part that codes the proteins has information about how when and where and how much to turn genes on and off.
0: Before we go on to the next question, I want to provide a little bit of background information. When we talk about gene editing, one of the main tools scientists use is called CRISPR. At a very basic level, CRISPRs are pieces of RNA copied from viruses that attack bacteria. Bacteria use these as a sort of book of mugshots so that when it recognizes a virus it's encountered before, it produces an RNA copy of the CRISPR that guides an enzyme called Cas9 to cut up the virus, rendering it harmless. Scientists are now building their own CRISPRs that use the same technique to act as genetic scissors, if you will, to edit or alter certain genes to understand how they work, repair broken genes, insert new ones, and disable harmful ones. Now, on to the question. Gotcha. So that kind of leads me into my next question. So, you know, in the age of, like, CRISPR and gene editing, I think the relationship between our genes and our humanity is starting to become more important, or at least is coming into the public attention more. So does, like, altering our genes affect how human we are, which I guess leads to a bigger philosophical question of, you know, how we determine what it means to be human, but... I think looking at things like, you know, intentional genetic modifications, whether it's for diseases, um, or for like, the idea that designer babies that people have talked about, is there a point where we, you know, start to alter our DNA to the point where we're no longer human?
1: Um, Conceivably, so you can turn a human genome into a chimp genome by changing approximately one out of every hundred nucleotides there that's not at all feasible right now to to edit make that many edits but it's sort of uh important to think about it because it's not completely inconceivable in the CRISPR age and Mm -hmm. so um the big question is uh to what degree we're we would want to do some of those genome edits. Um, I think most scientists would agree that in um, cell lines in a dish that never become a living organism, that it would be interesting and ethical to make at least some of those changes in human cells to make them more chimp-like or vice versa. Um, But obviously... uh, taking a human embryo and turning it into a chimpanzee is probably (laughs) outside of the scope of what people would want to do. And and as a community, we need to figure out where the line in between those two things, you know, where people are pretty comfortable and where people are pretty uncomfortable where the line sits.
0: Right. Does uh, like the small genetic alterations that we that like are already in place um, for the treatment of some diseases and stuff, do you think that those kinds of things uh, affect how human, quote-unquote, we say we are? Um,
1: I don't. Um, in most cases, those disease mutations are, for example, aren't uh, changing the DNA to be matching the chimp genome, that the human... The humans are walking around with, say, two versions of a part of the genome, and neither of those matches the chimp version. So it's just toggling between different human states. And in in most cases, it's not uh, toggling to the chimpanzee state. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some interesting examples where the disease state, the the version of the genome associated with disease, is the one that was present in our ancestors and and is shared by living chimpanzees, um, where it seems like we're evolving away from that state and that it's more healthy to not have the ancestral allele. But for the vast majority of disease mutations, um, that's, it isn't really human versus chimp, but really two human versions.
0: Right. So it's Uh kind of like, uh, there are multiple different things that you can switch between that still lie within the realm of what we consider human.
1: Yeah. If we look at all humans and the genetic mutations that differentiate us from one another, there's, you know, quite a bit of, genetic difference between one person and another person even between us and our parents and um the chimpanzee for the most part in most parts of the genome um, lies outside of that cloud of of genetic difference
0: Um, so i think it's a common belief at least amongst lay people who don't necessarily know a lot but like that you know our brains seem like uh one of the key factors to our humanness both our like its size and its just a processing ability um yes. so in your article you talked about the HAR1 gene uh that affects among other things the encoding and development of the cerebral cortex can you explain why that gene in particular was so important um
1: yeah so i discovered HAR1 it is interesting in a couple of aspects one is that it doesn't encode a protein it and um encodes RNA, like mm-hmm. all genes do. And in, in the case of protein coding genes, the RNA then gets translated into a protein. This one functions at the level of an RNA. And um, at the time when I discovered HAR1, um, there weren't so many RNA genes known. We now know there's many; there are many of them in our genome. Um, scientists are still trying to figure out what they do as RNAs. Um, but uh, many of them have been shown to be involved in this tuning up Turning up and down uh, protein coding genes. Um, others f- um, function um, as RNAs, and, and uh, for example, tRNAs are uh, part of the machinery that makes proteins, and they, they're, they form part of that structure, that molecular machine, as an RNA. Okay, so HAR1 is unique for being an RNA gene, but beyond that, um, it's exciting because it contains one of the fastest evolving. Parts of our genome, a part that was nearly identical throughout vertebrate evolution, the chimpanzee and the chicken have nearly identical sequences, but human is very different in that part of the genome. The fact that it didn't change for millions of years suggests that evolution was um, favoring the sequence that the chimpanzees and the chimp have and all the other mammals and vertebrates have. Uh, And that it was intolerant to change. And so to suddenly see a lot of changes in the human genome is very surprising and unexpected. So I found it by looking for that kind of a pattern genome-wide and found it was one of the most striking in the genome. Um, The other thing that's interesting about it is this RNA gets made during development of the embryo in our brains um, as they're forming the six-layered structure. Uh, that becomes our cortex. And the cortex is one of the parts of the brain that is uh, particularly large in humans. Um, The cortex has been evolving and growing in size throughout primate evolution. So um, it's not that uh, it's really unique to humans, but our cortexes are um, particularly large and have a large number of cells in them.
0: Gotcha. So, um, in continuing to talk about the role of specific genes, you also mentioned the uh, FOXP2 gene, which relates to speech, and I've heard yes. about that one quite a bit. So, can you talk about the role that the gene plays in our ability to use and understand language?
1: Uh, humans with mutations in FOXP2, uh, sometimes certain mutations in FOXP2 in humans, uh, make it difficult for people to speak, um, in particular, the physical articulation of speech. Um, and uh, this gene is also uh, quite different between humans and non-human primates. Uh, it is an example where the, the diseased mutations in humans, so the ones that, um, that have been shown in families to be associated with individuals who have trouble with speech, mm-hmm. are not the chimpanzee version. So it's an example where humans have two versions of this gene or many versions of this gene mm-hmm. actually across different people. But there's sort of um, some versions that are associated with having trouble speaking and others that don't. Um, and, and the chimpanzee is different again, it's neither of those states. So this is an example where um, we have some idea about how the importance and the function of the gene from human genetics, from comparing different people to each other which suggests that the human chimp differences may have something to do with speech, but we can't say that for sure because the individuals who have trouble speaking don't have the chimp version. They have another version again. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does.
0: Yeah. Um, So do you think, I think you were touching on it a little bit right before, but do you think understanding how this gene works and other genes related to um, speech are part of what is going to end up determining, or I guess how we prove what makes us innately human? Um, because I know I've talked about with other teachers and classes and stuff about how uh, humans have a more advanced system of language, just in the idea to talk about you know things that aren't there and retain ideas that change over time. So do you think that's something that's gonna come back to be important?
1: I do you think language has been an important component of human evolution, and uh, all of the culture that makes us quite astonishing as a species um, mm-hmm. is really facilitated by um, having a, a complex spoken language? Um, so I think language is important. I don't um, think we can say whether Fox P2 is totally responsible for that, or even partially right. responsible. My hunch is that something as complex as a spoken language uh, would require a number of different genetic changes and not just modification of a single gene.
0: Right, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, our last question for this, um, given everything we've talked about today, uh, from your experience and from your work, um, how do you define a human? Like, what do you think it means to be human?
1: Um, I think of uh, a uh, species, as a, you know, any species as a population of individuals mm-hmm. um, who can mate and produce viable offspring, and that where there's gene flow, meaning if beneficial mutations arise in an individual, they can over time get spread throughout the population.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so, you know, humans, I think of as, as a as, as any species, as a collection of of breeding individuals with gene flow.
0: While scientists have come a long way in understanding DNA and the roles of genes, there's clearly still a lot of work to be done. Genes work together to create a complex array of abilities, attributes, and behaviors in ways that it's possible we will never fully understand. But knowledge of the human genome does give us a concrete starting point to work from, and the advancements it has already facilitated in understanding how we work are invaluable. While the answer to what makes us human won't lie within the field of biology alone, Understanding how human life has adapted and evolved from our ancestors and from the other forms of life we see around us will almost certainly be a large piece of the puzzle. Thanks for joining me this week on Human, and check back this Monday for an interview with Dr. Chris Brighton as we take a look at how sociology factors into how we understand what it means to be human. Special thanks to Dr. Katie Pollard for her t- participation in today's episode, Lee Rosevier for the theme music, and Dr. Jen Scott Mobley, Dr. Tim Christensen, and the ECU Honors College for supporting this project. If you're interested in learning more about today's topic, look in the description below for a list of additional resources. And thanks for joining me this week on Human.